Guys, welcome to the I Love Seville show. My name is Jerry Miller. Thank you kindly for joining us. We are live in downtown Charlottesville, a place that we hold very close to our hearts. We love everything about this community, this region, and we love to celebrate and champion the region, even if that means at times we have to hold the region accountable for its future betterment. This show airs on every social media platform known to mankind, and it's an interactive program where you, the viewer and listener, are encouraged to chime in with questions, with thoughts, and help shape the perspective of the I Love Seville show. Judah Wickhauer is our director. Judah, if you could go to the studio camera, my friend, and let's welcome a gentleman who needs absolutely no introduction. David Toscano is in the house. You are live with a handful of states watching you right now. David, my friend, how are you doing today? Doing great. Weather's great. It's cool, crisp, and gets your energy flowing. I feel the same way. I feel invigorated when the weather dips below 50. Um, Are you a fall, spring, winter, or summer kind of guy? Oh, I love the fall. Really love the fall. Love the changing colors and everything. And I love the crisp mornings. Do you um, walk? to work? Would we see you on a bicycle like uh, a colleague of ours, Kathy Galvin, who rides a bike to work? Yeah. Recently retired Kathy Galvin. That's right. Well, I walk to work. You know, I'm only eight minute walk from my uh, house to my work, and I'm still practice, practicing law, so walk to work as many days as I can. How's uh, the Esquire life treating you, David? Scott? You know, I'm very busy being a lawyer and still enjoying being a lawyer in addition to the other things that I do. Uh, and uh, you know, it's great to see people and they're finally coming into the office again. It's just wonderful. I feel the same. Um, in our um, lexicon, we call it institutional memory. You have institutional memory. You've been a city councilor. You've been the mayor of Charlottesville. You've spent decades in Richmond um, as a retired delegate and you now an author. I would love to talk all things Charlottesville first and then we'll head down 64 to our Commonwealth's capital. First, an open-ended question, your State of the Union for Charlottesville, Virginia. Well, I think, I think Charlottesville is still very strong, you know, partly because of the, the strength of the university and bringing so much diversity to the community, it brings intellectual firepower here. We have our challenges. They're not as acute as some other places. Uh, even though sometimes they feel that way. Um, but there's a lot to, to recommend Charlottesville, and uh, if we can put our heads together and solve some of the problems that we're now experiencing, I think we'll be even better. Let's, let's um, you know the uh, movie Back to the Future? I do. We're going to hop in a DeLorean. <laughs> we're going to use the flux capacitor and Doc Brown's intellect, and you and I are going to jump back to a time when you were on the dais and you were the mayor. Let's say the circumstances of today are alive and present, and we have a number of circumstances we have to address in Charlottesville, but you have the influence of a counselor and and that of a mayor. What would be the first path of attack you would pursue? Well, I think they're doing some of the things that they really have to do now, and that is to think about the future of the city in terms of its density and how it's going to grow. Because one of the things that Uh, I experienced when I was mayor is that we were feeling this pinch on our social services department. We were were a a community that seemed to to be aging faster, that seemed to have higher levels of poverty, and we were not in a position where we could annex land so we could bring in tax revenues to help support the needs that people had. 
And at the time, we had considered giving up our charter and becoming part of Albemarle County. It was a process called reversion. And for me, it always came down to this. Either you're going to have to cut your budget dramatically, or you are going to have to revert to become part of Albemarle County, or you are going to have to uh, grow economically. And that meant uh, growing with trying to recruit tech uh, industries into Charlottesville, trying to grow up rather than out. And they're experiencing some of the similar kind of pressures. They're doing a lot on the rezoning issue in Charlottesville. I think as a result, we're going to get more density in the city. I think that's a good thing if we have the density in the right places and that there's just not density everywhere. Um, and I think that's going to help us uh, for the future in terms of our housing capacity and more uh, opportunities to have different people with different incomes be able to get different kinds of housing. So can I call you an upzoning advocate? I'm generally an upzoning advocate, but I think what's happened is that there, the original draft of this was so draconian that it's, and it seemed to affect so many different places without figuring out the nuances block by block. And when you upzone, you really have to think about those things. You can't just say, we're going to upzone and, and then take all the parking away. That doesn't make any sense. You can't just say, we're going to upzone on this corner, even though the transportation infrastructure is not there to handle it. You can't just say, let's upzone here when we don't have the transit facilities to handle it. So I think they're trying to refine the process now and make sure what they come up with is not going to, shall we say, destroy the city in order to save it. Viewers and listeners, you can ask um, the retired delegate, the former mayor, some questions. They're coming in fast and furious. Vanessa Parkhill in Earliesville, hello. A fellow Esquire, John Blair, watching in Stanton right now. Oh, John. Bill McChesney says, why could we not elect intellectual firepower that does not require consultants for nearly every decision made? Please ask David to pontificate on consultants and spending money like this. Well, it was, it was an issue when I was on the council, too, and I think there were too many consultants. I think there are some things that are so complicated and require fresh eyes to look at something that you want to hire consultants. But you can't be beholden cons to consultants because you, you are your own unique community, and they can't un hope to understand it as well as you do. Now, I'm not as close to it as I used to be, uh, I, I do know there have been a lot of ex expenditures on consultants, but you could, I couldn't tell you exactly what shouldn't have been spent where because I'm not party to those kinds of discussions that are going on in the city hall chambers right now. This question from Grayson, who's watching right down the road in North Downtown. Uh, Mr. Toscano mentions reversion. How close was the city to actually assimilating into Almaro County, assimilating my word right there. Yeah, well, it was pretty close. I, I think at one point there were probably three votes in favor of reversion. And I think that over time we listened to the public. The public was telling us they had some problems uh, with reversion. And in the end, we decided not to take it up. There was never a vote on it. So uh, people like me eventually came to view reversion as not a good thing. I, I was concerned about our school divisions, our school division in Charlottesville being taken over by Albemarle County School Division, and they had different priorities in the Charlottesville city at the time. 
Uh, now the community is much more in sync. The problems in Albemarle are very similar to the problems of Charlotte's, in Charlottesville in terms of the poverty population going to the public schools. So today it might be a little bit easier. It would have been very difficult, I think, 25, 30 years ago. I'll throw this um, scenario that's playing out in real time. Data Science School, funded by Jaffrey Woodruff, to the tune of you know, a significant donation. Uh, I think, frankly, Jeffrey's had more contribution to the Uni University of Virginia than anyone in history except for Thomas Jefferson. About $180 million in donations there. Um, that's going to create, say, two to 3,000 additional people with bags of money coming to Charlottesville. Paul Manning has funded the biotech school, Paul and his beautiful bride. $100 million donation from Mr. Manning. University of Virginia is already on record that that's going to create 3,000, 4,000 incremental citizens here. They're going to expand enrollment, and they're going to hire more people to service expanded enrollment. Furthermore, we know um, $11 billion invested into Louisa County by Amazon. I think we could see an additional eight to 10,000 incremental citizens to the Charlottesville metro area within the five to seven year time frame. I want to start open-ended first for you. That many people with big sacks of money coming to this area, what do you see happening? And lots of cars. And lots of cars. And that's, what, that's why density seems to be something that's worth pursuing. Because there's not enough housing in Charlottesville to house them all. And if it's not here, they're going to go out in the counties, into the rural areas. That creates more pressure on the, on the transportation infrastructure. It gobbles up more land. Part of the reason why this community is so attractive is that we have a vibrant city center and a beautiful world countryside. Uh, and we don't want to give up either one. So you have to find a way to grow up rather than out. And you're, you're going to have more pressure on the housing market with more people coming in. So you have to build more units. That's part of supply and demand that's going to help with the affordable housing problem. Liz Nottingham giving you some props right now on LinkedIn. Viewers and listeners ask questions. Ginny Hu watching on Twitter. Six states watching David Toscano on the program today. What do you make of um, this Market Street Park situation? You know, I've got a lot of concerns about it. I think a lot of people sort of saw this as coming out of nowhere. Uh, and It's not like we haven't had a housing, uh, a homelessness or an unhoused uh, community problem in the past, uh, and it's not as if the businesses in the downtown area haven't been talking about this for a long time, but to all of a sudden start to locate everybody in the park has got folks upset because they don't see an end game. And I think that uh, the city manager the other day said that they're putting together a plan, but clearly tents in the park are not a plan. Uh, and people want to know, they want to know, for example, if there were so many people sleeping on the mall at night, how many are sleeping there now that you have tents in, in, in the park? Uh, if we have a need for several hundred beds for a night, I guess there are several hundred homeless or under unhoused people in the community, how are they going to be served? Uh, uh, Mayor Snook said it's going to cost money, and he's absolutely right. You're going to have to build some more temporary shelters. That's what a lot of other places have done, and you can't solve this problem without temporary shelters. You can't solve the problem without some kind of a 
wraparound services to provide people who have some mental health issues, and not all house, unhoused people have mental health issues, by the way. Uh, uh, some people even have jobs who are unhoused. So there are a whole host of reasons why people are unhoused. We have to try to address those reasons as a, as a community, and we also have to speak to those people who are genuinely concerned about panhandlers, uh, worried about their safety, whether rightly or wrongly, when they experience someone who comes upon them and asks them for money. Um, there's just a lot of factors to be considered, but I don't think that the, the encampment uh, can be seen in any way as uh, some kind of solution to the problem because it just isn't and it's going to, I think, it might exacerbate it. A lot of folks making the parallel with um, what's happening in Charlottesville to big-time cities like San Francisco. Well, the one that I've looked at most carefully has been Portland. And Portland had a, has a very serious uh, homelessness problem, much more serious on a uh, per capita basis in Charlottesville. And they were allowing... Tent cities to grow up all over the place, and basically, then they had a, a, a turnover in their council leadership, and they basically said, "We're not going to do this anymore. You cannot camp." They have a law that says you cannot camp in a public space overnight, uh, and uh, and there, we don't know exactly what's going to happen there, but there was a lot of worry that their downtown was being destroyed by homeless people. Now, I don't live there. I'm not saying that that's right or wrong, but that's, that's the perception that a number of people had. And I think, frankly, that's one of the worries that people have around here. Some people are just don't want to come down to the mall. I mean, I, I don't ever feel uh, unsafe, although I'm not there after 10 o'clock at night. I go down on Friday nights. It's packed with people. There doesn't seem to be much of a problem. Weekends don't seem to be much of a problem. I think the problem is when there are not enough people on the street and then you get a couple of homeless folks who may be uh, asking for money and that gives people a sense of insecurity. Uh, Derek Bond watching the program. He owns The Melting Pot in downtown mm -hmm. Charlottesville. He owns Moe's on Ivy Road. He's a fantastic restaurateur. He says this, um, it was such a poor decision by the new city manager. There isn't one as long as the voters keep electing like-minded politicians. Um, I'm going to throw this to you um, about downtown Charlottesville. Um, like you, we, are, we know a lot of people. I mean, been here 23 years, not as long as you, but you get to know a lot of people. A lot of the folks that we've gotten to know, business owners or the uh, building owners in downtown Charlottesville, and they've characterized the either quality of life or level of positivity, the good energy around downtown, um, at, I hate to say this, at a rather low point right now. Um, is it the role of a city council member or a mayor, or is it strictly the role of a city manager and his or her staff to, care, to consider quality of life, positivity, foot traffic, engagement, spending, uh, who does that fall on? Well, it falls on both of them. You know, the mayor basically is a cheerleader for the city. And one of the concerns I had with one of the previous mayors is she really wasn't much of a cheerleader for the city. In fact, she just spent her time hating on the city. Hating the city. And, yeah. you know, and Lloyd Snook is a, is a cheerleader for the city. Uh, 
and uh, the city manager, of course, answers to the city council. I, I can't believe that the city manager would take a decision like this without consulting the city council. That, that doesn't seem to be in sync with the way it happened when I was around. Now, maybe it's different now. Um, but ultimately, the buck stops with the elected, elected leadership. And I think that they better get some control over this soon or it's going to backfire on them. And I what think, would you do if you were on the dais? Well, I, I wouldn't have done, Well, first of all, I think... I don't think this would have happened if they consulted me first and said, I want to do this. Because I would want to have known, what's the population in the downtown mall who are staying overnight? Are there other ways to get them into shelters that, so they don't have to stay on the mall? If we were going to do something that would try to get them off the mall, I'd be looking at a number of alternatives. Maybe the park would be one. But I would want to have data to empirically assess whether it's having the impact that I would want it to have. I, you know, I don't know where people get the tents to stay on uh, in the park. I My wife asked they, me that question. I don't know where they come from because some of those tents are expensive, are pretty nice, you yeah. know? Yeah. And I don't think we should, you know, I don't want to be heartless about this because it's getting cold out there. You do want some shelter and you do want some safety for folks who have this issue. But I would want to have a plan in place and play out the plan, and I would want to have community involved in putting together the plan. There are a lot of really talented people around here. They could try to figure this out. Moving the Pacham uh, services up a month would make a lot of sense to me. There are other places that might be able to take people. I'd want to know about the Haven and whether what prohibitions, if any, there are to them housing people on their site. I've understood that they have rejected that notion, but I don't know why that's the case. Uh, you know, part of the problem, of course, is I'm not in the room right now, and I'm just sort of shooting off uh, from the hip here. But I do know that the people I talk to are concerned about what's happening, and they want to get some answers. And hopefully the city council will be responsive and come up with a plan soon. So we do get some way to address this issue. You're getting a lot of props and a lot of love right now. I'm going to relay some of that props to you here. Before I do, I want you to noodle this topic. NBC29 interviewed a couple of the men and women that are at Market Street Park now. Um, And the men and women that are at Market Street Park now that are sleeping in the tents are now insisting that the city provide them with porter potties, running water, in electricity in the park. Now, I'll throw that to you here. They're literally demanding that the city providing porter potties, running water, and electricity in the park. John Blair, for you, says many thanks to Delegate Toscano's service, the foresight of he and others to focus on economic development efforts to attract tech companies to Charlottesville was a major decision that protected the city's futures, uh, future economic prosperity. Charlottesville in the late 90s was truly struggling from an economic development perspective. Delegate Toscano and others did a fantastic job to change this turn of events or this course of action. I would like to talk economic development with you, but I want to talk the um, park now asking for, I mean, you're talking about utilities here. We're talking right. about utilities in the right. park. That, that, well, you've got to have, you have to have sanitation. I mean, I, I don't know about electricity, uh, running water, 
all those things, I mean, I don't know what happens when people have to uh, relieve themselves and they're in the park. You know, maybe there should be a porta potty at least for a short period of time. But you do not. The more services you put into that park, the more difficult it is to be able to move people that's once it, once it happens. And that that's not a good solution here, uh, because you know there were enough problems having people have access to the parks anyway without this going on. I mean, I. Most of the people I know don't walk through Market Street Park or, or the park by the Elmo County Circuit Court because they're afraid of being accosted by someone who they don't understand or they, you know, they got some concerns about. So why make it worse? The parks are supposed to be for all the people. You know, you don't go into Central Park and feel like you're going to be accosted all the time because you can see there are police around who are addressing folks who are homeless or might might be panhandling in the park. So, yeah, I mean, the parks belong to all the people. They don't just belong to a subset. You got a TV station and a newspaper watching you. Uh, David Toscano on the program live as we speak. This comment comes in um, from Deep Throat, which is one of our favorite viewers and listeners. That's his moniker, Deep Throat. He says, can you ask David Toscano a possible... Uh, possibly important question. Why don't we have candidates of his quality anymore? Is the political culture simply too toxic? What can we do to make it less toxic to have candidates of David Toscano's pedigree? That's a good oh, well, question. Yeah, that, there are a lot of people uh, who, who could do what I've done in the past. And there are, there are a lot of people in the community who can serve, and there are a lot of good people already in public office at all levels. Uh, part, I think, of the problem is that every little, you know, wart or blemish of a person uh, who otherwise makes really good decisions are, are, is, you know, is exaggerated because of the power of social media. Uh, I think we sort of have to take a step back and sort of give people more the benefit of the doubt. I, I think we have to be more open to listening to other points of view and really hearing what people's perspectives are. Sometimes I don't think there's enough of it. And I think that, you know, have to do a better job in being transparent about the decisions you make. Like the decision about the park, I think one of the reasons people are, were concerned about it is it sort of did come out of nowhere and it came as a shock. You know, if you prepare people for, for decisions that are tough, it, it's, it's easier to do. I remember... When I was mayor, the big issue was whether we were going to have a, a vehicular tra uh, crossing across the mall. Very controversial issue. But we didn't just open up the, the, the street overnight. We had public hearings about it. We, there were demonstrations about it. People came and talked about it. I think people listened to what was being said. Eventually, we made this decision. And even though there was some controversy, people came to live with it. Um, and I think that's what you got to do more of. It's difficult because everybody wants to have everything done right away. The financier, Alex Witten, watching the program on LinkedIn. This is from Vanessa Parkhill, who we've monikered the queen of Earliesville. For David Toscano, why doesn't the city temporarily relocate the public space to Washington Park or Tonsler Park, where there is already access to restrooms and shelter? Good question. I mean, I think you should ask the mayor and uh, city councilor, councilors and the city manager because that's another option. 
Uh, it doesn't have to necessarily be in Market Street Park. I think the rationale was that it was closer to the Haven and uh, to the soup kitchen. That's right. And there's a you know there's a logic to that, uh, but you know maybe do something at Tonsler Park, for example. It, it has a facility that where people can come inside to eat, uh, but there's a lot of need for the soup kitchens and there's a lot of. Um, uh, product downtown. So I think that's one of the reasons why they did it there. Have we fostered this environment um, ourselves? This is another interesting topic that's come on the show. Um, you pull um, a lot of the folks that are um, either panhandling, living in the park, right. or utilizing <laughs> the resources tied to being unhoused. Right. And a lot of them are not, fa- are not from the area. Right. They're commuting to the area because of what they have heard through the grapevine as accessibility or yeah. approachability or yeah. welcomeability or, heck, even hospitability. Um, are we creating this ecosystem ourselves? Well, yeah, you, again, there's a, an empirical answer to this question, and I don't know what it is because I don't think people are really talking to folks about why they're here. You know that there are a lot of people here who grew up in Charlottesville and are unhoused and homeless. There are people who come from outside. Uh, There are people, a lot of people, who who are homeless for only short periods of time. It's not a perpetual issue. There are some people who were formerly institutionalized who are now homeless. There are veterans who are homeless now but weren't before. So... There is not one reason why somebody is unhoused or homeless. And we don't know necessarily that they're all coming from outside. I was on the mall last night, you know, because this is, this is such an issue. Everything I see, I'm filtering this issue, seeing these things through that issue. And I saw two people who looked like they were ready to set up on the downtown mall, and they had suitcases like they just come to town. And, but I didn't know f- for sure where they were coming from. It just played into my stereotype of what some people were doing. But you can get those answers. You send social workers out, talk to people, and find out why they're here. The panhandling issue, you know, people in some communities, people give to a box that goes to serve homeless people. They don't give directly to panhandlers because the panhandlers just learn to panhandle more. So it's, it's not an easy question to resolve. You've got to approach it in lots of different ways. Interestingly, um, Waynesboro, for example, has signs in the medians that says, um, do not give to the panhandlers um, at all. So their course of action is to um, have a call to action for residents not to do it. That's right. Um, which is, you know, and, and Virginia Beach had that at one point as well. And there's a lot of lo- there's a lot of logic to that. Uh, and and maybe people get better service if they're going to a soup kitchen. Kitchen is partly funded by donations that people are making rather than giving directly. Um, Derek Bond, Derek, I really appreciate your perspective on things. He has said um, he believes, of course, the city has fostered this. And, and, you know, this man's opinion should be valued with the restaurant on the mall that employs a number of people. 
mm-hmm. and also a restaurant on Ivy Road. He says, of course, the city has fostered this, which is why they continue to tie the police hands, the police's hands, and make de- uh, decisions that potentially encourage um, the behavior. I'll put it in perspective. When we lift the curfew or remove the curfew from Market Street Park, that was one of the few leverage points that are are you know Charlottesville's finest that the men and women that wear blue um, they had the curfew as a way to potentially right. remove or 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 keep the park a park and not a cap- campground that's right you t- you took away a tool and um, there have been some questions about how how involved the city police chief was in this and all and I don't have the answers to that but but uh, you know and and the police of course. They're very sensitive to the whole dynamic, too. I mean, there was a, the, the, the accusation that somebody got kicked, and, of course, they looked carefully, and they found that there was no inappropriate behavior. And I think we have this... Te- and, again, you talked earlier about the toxicity of things. We have this uh, tendency to jump first and yell at somebody first between, before we find out the facts. And what that does is make people... You know, they become hesitant about things that they ought to be doing as part of their job. And the police department is like that, too. You know, the police, if they have a choice between interacting with somebody who might be a problem and maybe not, if they're afraid that they're going to be accused of this, that, and the other thing, they might be inclined to step away and not do what we really need them to do. I think we have to sort of gear up as a community and say... There are bad apples in police departments, to be sure. But most of these people are trying to do a good job. Let's try to support them in doing a good job rather than always criticizing them. You said it better than I could. I 1,000% agree with literally what he just said right there. Um, I'd like to bring this topic up. Um, a number of people are asking this. The dynamic between city councilors, the city manager, and the police chief and how the council acts from a conversation standpoint, an instruction standpoint, a unification standpoint, or are they truly hands-off with the city manager and the police chief? Well, it depends on the issue. If, if the politics are hot, they'll, they'll say, look, it's my hands-off, the city manager runs the city, and the police chief runs, runs the police. And, you know, really, that's kind of the way it should be. The, the, it's the council that should set the policy... And then the city manager, the police chief, carry out the policy. The, the council can't be dipping into every decision that's being made by the manager or the police. That's part of the problem of the last council. You had people getting in the middle of this operational work of doing the city's business. Um, but if, it, if it's going to be a very controversial issue, the really good city managers, the really good police chiefs, will somehow be able to consult with elected leadership to make sure they're not making a really bad decision. That's really the, kind of the way it works, even though, generally speaking, it's the council that should be the policy-setting operation, and the manager and the police chief, they carry out the policy. Uh, Supervisor Price, welcome to the program. We love when you watch the show. Katie Pearl, Carly Wagner, Chad Wood, Bill McChesney, Carol Thorpe, who founded the uh, Tea Party here in Charlottesville, watching the program. Sarah Hill Buchensky watching the program. I see viewers and listeners from eight, no, nine states watching us right now. 
on the I Love Seville show, Supervisor Rutherford. Welcome to the program. One of Nelson County's finest, Jesse Rutherford. Um, this is a good one for you. What makes a good city manager? A person who is sensitive to the uh, thoughts and needs of the community and uh, can take criticism well and explain the rationale for decisions that are being made. There you go. And he knows them quite well. Um, I've promised you not just Market Street Park, um, but a number of other topics. We'll get to Cree Deeds, Amy Lawfer, Katrina Coulson. We'll talk Richmond. We'll talk should politics be involved in school board races. We'll talk, we'll talk um, 2024. Is it a Donald Trump, Joe Biden part due? I mean, right now, a lot of prognosticators are saying, yes, that's what we're going to be left with. Um, which really has me perplexed and flummoxed, but I'll get to that in a matter of moments. First, I want to talk um, deeds, Cree deeds, tight little battle with Sally Hudson. Cree deeds, an institution prevails. We talked about that before um, Ms. Hudson even entered the race. A um, little mudslinging involved there, especially from Sally's side when it came to Cree's, Mr. Deeds' um, voting record when it comes to guns. Uh, to the point where Mr. Deeds' daughter comes out and stands up for her father. Actually ran into Cree Deeds by the library a couple of days ago, late last week, I think on Friday. I'll start open-ended. I love talking politics with you because you're a junkie for this, just like me. Cree Deeds, Sally Hudson, and what shook out? Did anything surprise you at all? Uh, well, Sally Hudson really ran a, a, a wonderful campaign. I mean, to get as close as she did was pretty amazing. Now she had unbelievable financial support. Sonia Smith. Plus places outside of the state that were coming in and playing in uh, a primary in Virginia un unlike ever before. I mean, talking about hundreds of thousands of dollars. Now, why that occurred, I have my theories. I don't have evidence yet. Can so, I ask you about this? Uh, yeah, but I just think it has to do with the flowing of money in different directions and where it comes from and where it gets back to. But I, I think the voters ultimately made a really good choice when they chose Senator Deeds because mainly because he's got that seniority there uh, 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 in the Finance Committee and a conferee on the budget. Now, a conferee on the budget to this area makes a big, a large difference because we're talking about the University of Virginia funding. We're talking about schools funding. Those are the two things that really energize this community. And to have somebody in the room making those final decisions are, is really, really important. Um, so, I, you know, I, I, I was a big supporter of Korea, of always have been. And I always thought that Sally had a good role to play in the house. She was building up seniority. And, you know, we don't have it now. Katrina Coulson will be a wonderful delegate. But... She doesn't have any seniority right She'll now. She'll be a rookie. She'll be a rookie, and to her credit, she knows to kind of sit back and uh, try to listen and learn how the system works rather than come in and shake everything up right away because to do that enrichment may mean that you never get anything accomplished. So I think she'll be very good. I think uh, Amy Lawfer looks like she will win that seat. Oh, she's going to dominate. Yeah. Yeah. And the Democrats cannot win control of the House of Delegates without Amy Lawfer winning her seat. Uh, she's in one of those flip districts. Rob Bell was it, represented that area before. He was a Republican. When the redistricting came out, that district became 
a better district for Democrats, and if Amy Lawford can't win it, the Democrats cannot win control of the House of Delegates. Um, can we talk Sonia Smith? Um, Sonia Smith is invested, and I, I love VPAP. I love the Virginia Public Access Project website. I love politics. I love data. Like, here's a piece of data that was just sent in by one of our most brilliant viewers and listeners. According to HUD, the homelessness count in 2007 in the Charlottesville area was 267. Now, according to HUD, the homelessness count in 2022 was 265. So it's the exact same number from 2007 to 2022. That's from Deep Throat. And he loves data just as much as you and I do. So and, and you see that around the country, too. I mean, Portland had the same blip. Uh, it, well, they, they had attacked homelessness, and it went down. And then it just has started to go up again since the pandemic. We're seeing some of the same dynamic in Charlottesville. It's just not the absolute numbers are not as high. Um, Amy Lawford, to put it in perspective, she is being challenged by the Republican Steve Harvey. Uh, Steve Harvey lost in 2019 a Board of Supervisors race to Ann Malik who's an institution and potentially could win her fifth straight term Amazing. on the Almoral County Board of Supervisors. Amazing. 20 straight years, one person's been on the board. Steve Harvey has raised $19,451. Amy Lawfer has raised $473,322. She holds an over $450,000 fundraising lead against a Republican opponent, Steve Harvey, who just opened up a coffee shop north of town. Can we talk, and, and, and I'll let you go anywhere you want to go here, the impact of Sonia Smith, her husband, her husband's pack on political races, Sonia Smith has kicked 15 grand to Allison Spillman, who's running for the at-large seat in the Almoral County School Board. 15 grand, David. Anywhere you want to go on Sonia. Oh, boy. I mean, Sonia Smith is a real progressive, has very strong views about, uh, about the role of women in politics, the importance of having women elected in politics, strong views on reproductive rights, on clean energy, and God love her, she puts her money where her mouth is. Now, sometimes I don't agree with decisions that get made, but then again, I, lots of people don't agree with me all the time about decisions that I would make. Um, she invested heavily in... in Ms. Hudson's race. campaign. Yeah, yeah and, and, and she's invested all over the country. I mean, it's, it's wonderful to use that wealth. Uh, now, I think there should be campaign finance reforms, and I do think that we need to get some control over too much spending by individuals. Constitutionally, there are challenges with that. But I think the role of money in politics is just out of control. It's really out of control in Virginia because we have off-off-year elections. So there, we're one of the few games in town, and you see people pouring millions into these races. Uh, you know, a delegate's race costs $2 million to run. What's wrong with that picture? And... Um, but every time you put bills in, I put in a bill just before I left just to limit it to $20,000, and I could not get it out of committee. Uh, and I don't really know why, because we can't have too many people with money getting involved in a way that uh, they are starting to influence these races. You know, in Sonia's case, some of the people she's invested in have won 
Other people, like Jennifer Carroll Foy, who ran for governor, I think there was a half a million dollars put into that race, and she lost. So you win some and you lose some. It's just there's just too much money around, and it's not just her. I'll get, right. I'll give you a follow-up. Sonia Smith, husband Michael Bills, and his PAC, Clean Virginia. The totality of those entities, controlled essentially by one household, surpasses Dominion Electric's influences. I know it's a, in it's some a, campaign. It cycles. is. It is amazing. It's amazing. And uh, again, and that's these folks are great philanthropists in the community too. I mean, Sonia Smith gives so much money to uh, legal aid uh, to a lot of groups that really need it, and they couldn't do the work they do without those contributions. So we have to celebrate those. Uh, at the same time, they're not the only ones that are playing. I mean, you saw what Pilecki, I think his name was, somebody who doesn't live in Virginia, just gave $2 million to Glenn Youngkin to supposedly use on statewide races. That we can't tolerate either, and especially since they're out of state. Um, Sonia Smith, we'll get off this topic. I'll throw this in myself. 10K to Nakia Walker and her push for mayor. She was Nakia Walker's number one donor during Nakia Walker's successful run for city council. Um, I want to talk about the Democratic um, Party and this current election cycle. And certain races, if you're um, blue, you win. Um, we're going to see that with Lawfer and her victory against Kellen Squire. In that particular race, we saw, which surprised me a little bit, because they were both Democrats, and Ms. Lawfer was at one time the head of the Democrats in Almaro County, the chairwoman. What'd you make of the mailers, where she's taking a paragraph or two, some would call it cherry-picking, from a Kellen Squire blog post from years ago, and using that as the foundation of what some would call maybe a mudslinging, smear, right. yeah. and, and mailers to households? Would you, yeah. Democrats against Democrats there. Yeah, and I think it's a product of the time. There's too much negative campaigning going on. Um, you know, I, I was, when I ran, I was fortunate that I didn't really have, ever have a close race except my first one, and I didn't really have to resort to those kinds of things you know, you'd like to say you wouldn't do it. I know when I was Democratic leader, there were mailers that we saw from candidates of our party that were going to be sent out that we nixed because either we thought they were illegal or we thought that they were inappropriate. And it's incumbent upon leaders to step up and say, I'm not going to do this sort of thing. Uh, and that's the only way we're going to get control of that. Uh, but when you have these consultants saying to you, this is the only way you can win, it really creates a moral dilemma for you because your, your heart may be saying, no, I don't want to do this, but these people with the statistics here are saying, this is the only way you win. Then you've got a choice to make. Are you going to lose graciously or are you going to win by really going after someone in a way that might uh, further polarize the community? And, you know, and we're seeing it all around the country. Everywhere. Everywhere. Our politics have become nationalized. You wanted to talk about school board races. Right. I don't care if Meg Bryce's father was 
Antonin Scalia? I don't care. But frankly, that's the only thing I found out about her during this race. Uh, and the fact that she doesn't have any kids in public schools. But I don't really know very much about her views about public schools. And I think that's a tragedy. But people are now starting to look at, do you have a D next to your name or do you have an R? And they will vote based just on the D or just on the R. And as a result, we get more polarization because we're not really looking carefully at what people are saying. Uh, we've created our tr these tribes that we're, we're all in now, and I'm guilty of it too, and, uh, and, and they're making uh, compromise more difficult. What, um, you've brought up the school board. I'm so excited to talk about the school board, and you're 100% right. This is why I love talking with you. I love talking about politics with you. Um, in the school board race, the at-large seat of Almora County, I mean, we, we talk about obscene amounts of money here. I'll look at VPAP while you're, while you're answering this question, and I'll give the viewers and listeners the total here. I'm quite confident it's over 100 grand for a school board race in totality, which is an astronomical amount of money, especially compared to like 2019, the previous elections. You know. So I'll throw this to you here. You have a candidate in Allison Spillman who is an incredibly electable candidate. She has an impressive resume. She's choosing to run her campaign, however, in a smoke and mirror tactics by utilizing Meg Scalia Bryce in the same way folks used to refer to Barack Obama as Barack Hussein Obama. Mm -hmm. You know, try to throw that middle name in there or that made it in there to influence people. She's utilizing her campaign to smoke and mirror book banning when the candidate Bryce is not about book banning, and she's utilizing her campaign to really try to drive home the private school factor with their kids in private schools and not being in public schools like Spillman has. What happened to campaigning about the issues you believe in, standing by it, and then allowing the voting public to determine where their vote aligns? Right. Well, I, I think people should do that. I mean, the question for uh, uh, Meg Bryce would be, okay, you got I don't know how many children in, in private schools. You're going to be elected to the public school board. Does the fact that your kids in private schools have any impact on the way, way you look at public school policy? Do you think it does? I don't think it should, but I think it does because if you don't have as much contact with the schools, you may not understand some of the issues that the schools face. But again, I haven't been close to that race at all, so I don't really know what, what, what's going on there totally. Uh, I do think, it, to, to tar, tar and feather her based on her dad, you know, it, it happens all the time, uh, maybe not to be the right thing, but, you know, the way I understand Allison Spillman is she's really high-quality person, and... I remember when I was on the, the council, when we used to appoint school board members, we looked for diversity. We looked for diversity across political lines, and we were not adverse to appointing Republicans, even though we were a five Democratic member uh, council. Uh, I think it's a tragedy what's happening around the country where some Republican states are trying to get people to run on either a Democratic or a Republican line for local school boards and p further politicizing the schools. I think that's a mistake.
So I don't think people should run with D's or R's next to their names. I 1,000% agree with that statement. I'll put this school board race in perspective, then we'll head to, I mean, we are less than 13 months away from electing a new president, which is an interesting proposition for this country. Um, Meg Bryce, according to VPAP.org, has raised $67,083. That's the current number on the VPAP website. Spillman, $59,037. We are talking hundred, roughly $126,000, million, $126,000, $67,000, $59,000, $126,000 in totality for a school board at-large race. Yep, go to Loudoun County. Even you higher. Want to see, you want to see people spending money on school board races. I mean, it, it's much more controversial in, in Loudoun County than Albemarle, and you'll see it in, in the spending. Question is, where does the money come from? Is it local people? Is it Oz State people? I, I don't know. I haven't looked at these things. Sonia's, uh, Miss Smith, is Allison's top donor at 15K. Mm -hmm. um, a lot I want to cover with um, former mayor and former delegate David Toscano. I want to talk... 2024, depending on where you get your news, and it's now becoming uh, a common theme across all the networks or platforms, it's looking like a potential Biden-Trump 2024 rematch. Is that what you think is going to happen? Boy, it sure looks like that right now. How, how somebody has been indicted for 91 felony charges can be in a race for president is just totally beyond me. But uh, be that as may, of course, you know, I'm a Democrat. I'm a big supporter of Joe Biden. The things he's done with infrastructure, the things he's done to repair NATO, his defense of, the, of Ukraine. I mean, you go right down the line. This person has been one of the most consequential presidents in history. Uh, and, but he's, he tends to be old. So people say they focus on his age and they're not focusing on what he's done. Has he done a good job? I think he's been a, he's been a great president. I, I think he has restored some of the, some of the sense of that America is a respected entity around the world. I mean, Trump he almost destroyed NATO, and without NATO, Russia is on the border of Poland. And do we want that to happen? I don't think so. And now we've got the Middle East. And Biden, because of his, all of his diplomatic experience, has a chance of doing something there where I don't think Trump would have had the opportunity to do it. I mean, he just doesn't have the, you know, the, the skill set to do it. So I, I think it, Biden has been a great president. I, I hope he gets reelected. We'll see. Um, Joe Biden turns 80 years old right. this year. 80 years old. So if elected... Joe Biden will be 85-plus when his term is over. Let me get um, Donald Trump. Oh, he's close, too. Donald, he's old, too. Donald, Donald Trump is 77, so three years the junior of Joe Biden. Trump obviously has um, tangible and palpable baggage that you've identified. What does it say about the country that Trump and Biden are likely going to be our options? Well, the reason Biden is going to be the option for the Democrats is the incumbent. Is he, yeah, he's the incumbent. He's done a great job. I mean, that's, that's the reason he's going to be there. The Trump thing has to do with the stranglehold that the 
the, the very conservative right wing has on their party. Uh, I think if you were to ask a lot of Republicans, they would prefer not to have Donald Trump. But right now you've got how many Republicans in the race? They're all dividing the votes except for Trump. And Trump has coalesced his base, and that's what's going to get him over the finish line. I think if you had ranked choice voting, for example, in the Republican primaries, you might have somebody else emerge. Uh, but it's the way it is in, in primaries. It's winner take all. Trump's going to win those primaries because he's got his little his base, and it might not be the majority, but it's the plurality, and that'll get him to win all these state primaries and be nominated. You and I both read a ton of stuff. Many of the platforms and national outlets are pointing to Virginia and what happens in November with our elections as a bellwether of what's going to happen with the presidential race. Um, a lot of folks are saying maybe Glenn Youngkin jumps in the mix. How do you see November playing out? This November, I mean, we're talking, this is so exciting. I love this stuff so much. We're talking four weeks from now. Four weeks from now. This, this is like my, well, almost People my, are voting now. People are voting now. People are literally voting now. I, I personally like to do it on election day. My wife and I go, we bring our boys just for the, the pomp and circumstance. Right. Creates the memories, how my parents did it. Um, and encourages, it's an opportunity for us to show a lesson to our boys, if you may. Um, but we're f- four weeks away. <laughs> so excited. It's my Super Bowl here. How do you think November is going to play out here for races in Virginia when it comes to Republicans and Democrats? Well, first to set the table. Yes, please. We have a Republican governor who won, I think, in kind of a, uh, kind of a uh, upset. Oh, he was a huge upset because McAuliffe put his foot in his mouth when it came to parents. parents. Yeah, parents and schools. That's right. He screwed up three times, McAuliffe. And and we we got out of Afghanistan and people said, well, we can't trust the Democrats. We're going to vote for a Republican, you know, right down the line. So we've got a Republican governor and we've got a House of Delegates that is a Republican majority and we have a Senate that's controlled by Democrats, right? So we've got kind of a check and balance. We've got a little bit of a gridlock going on. Youngkin's trying to change that. All he needs to do is swing a couple of seats in the Senate and keep the House, and he's got the trifecta. And he will run, they will run the table with every conservative right-wing bill you can imagine from restraining reproductive freedom to rolling back voter rights to cutting down on, uh, on, on um, people's ability to vote absentee. Uh, Marijuana. Already doing that. I, yeah, I don't know what they're going to do with that. But, but a whole host of th- energy policy, they will change the look of Virginia pretty dramatically. So there's a lot at stake. And people are watching Virginia because they're saying, well, here's Glenn Youngkin. He ran as a moderate, even though he really isn't one. And now he's got a chance to flip all the seats. Uh, and if he were to win, that would send a huge signal across the country that we're moving back to the right. I don't think that's going to happen. I, I think there's a very good chance that the Democrats keep control of the Senate. And I think there's a reasonable chance that the Democrats win back control of the House. Now, remember, this is the first, this is the first election where the, where the, the actual... Um, elected representatives did not draw the lines for the districts. They were drawn by the Supreme Court. So you've got a lot of different people in the mix, but it's not an incumbency protection program. You're going to get a lot of new people coming to Richmond, Republican and Democrat, after this election. 
But I do think that the, the, the maps look like they favor the Democrats a little bit in the House. It's going to be a close election. Around here, there's not much mystery. But in other places, Hampton Roads in Northern Virginia, you got a lot of people fighting, spending a lot of money, and they're going to win by 500 votes or so. So your crystal ball says the Dems retain the Senate and the Dems take, take the House maybe by one vote. You think so? I think so. Wow. That would be interesting. Um, do you buy Virginia the Bellwether? Hey, I wrote a book. It's called Bellwether. I, that's <laughs> my toss-up to you. I know. I've, <laughs> I've given you a grand slam here. Yeah, that's right. I mean, uh, that book called Bellwether it was telling the story of how Virginia, which was a very ruby-red state in the early 2000s, became eventually purple, and now I think it's really light blue. It's, it's, it's voted for Democrats in the presidential race for the last uh, four cycles, Obama twice, Hillary, and Biden. So you're seeing a light blue of Virginia. I think Yunkin is sort of an anomaly. Um, but I think people look at Virginia and say, yeah, it's a bellwether state. Uh, how Virginia goes is going to be seen as how the country's moving. I got a couple dozen people asking you um, about a potential independent and Robert Kennedy Jr. Any impact on the race? Robert Kennedy Jr., guys, if you're following at all on social media, is um, building a bit of momentum. Um, can an independent impact the race? Uh, a doubtful. Doubtful, right? Although... This is not a race. This is 50 races. Right. And it could be that someone like that could have an impact somewhere. Like Ralph Nader had it when he ran as an independent. He had, a, he had an impact in Florida when Gore lost by just a couple hundred votes. And so you can have an impact in a state and had that state have an impact on the entire country. So it's not about a big impact. He doesn't take many he doesn't get much of the vote, a very small percentage, but he could have an impact in one state. I, I mean, I hate to say it, I loved Robert Kennedy, and this man is no Robert Kennedy. He has crazy ideas about lots of things from vaccines to all kinds of other things, and I hope he doesn't get much traction. Um, climate change, we'll close on this. You, the, the hour with you, this is honestly one of my favorite interviews I do. You're a host dream David Toscano, your recent blog post, which you can find on Substack, is about climate change and how it is very much front and center and a priority for Gen Zers and younger. I am seeing that with, within my family dynamics. Open-ended for you, climate change and the next generation of Americans. Well, the next generation, uh, if you look at all, of, all the polls, climate change is right up there as one of the number one issues for young, younger people. The Post is all about these young people in Montana, in Montana of all places, who filed a lawsuit claiming that the fossil fuel policy of the state legislature violated the Montana Constitution. It's really interesting. And you're finding those, those lawsuits coming out of a lot of different states that have environmentally sensitive amendments to the Constitution. Pennsylvania is one of those states. Uh, we talked about Montana. Virginia has a, a quasi-environmental constitutional provision. And I think people, these young people, are looking for all kinds of vehicles, not just electoral politics, but the courts, 
uh, mass protests, anything that will get climate change on the agenda so that people will think about change. And uh, I think that's good for the future. I think it's great for the future. This is the second sentence of David Toscano's post on his Substack. You can find it on uh, deltoscano.substack.com. The title of the post is The Kids Are All Right. A 2022 survey by the Ed Week Research Center survey found that 37% of teenage respondents feel anxious about climate change and its effects Third sentence is this, perhaps most troubling is the number who feel paralyzed to do much about it beyond justifiably skewering their elders for the problems we face. I know within my family dynamics, this is a topic of conversation at the table where you have perhaps boomers more focused on taxes and Gen Zers, Gen Alpha, more focused on the world that they're going to mature into. Um, closing thoughts anywhere you want to go. Well, the good news is there are a lot of te technological changes that are occurring that have a shot at trying to reverse this, this trend. You know, everything from electric cars, electrifying everything, uh, making houses more energy efficient. Um, and a lot of the changes are happening at the state level. My, you know, my, my research now is all about states and what they're trying to do to improve uh, uh, you know, everything from climate change to, you know, civil rights. But there are a lot of changes going on in the states that are designed to reduce our, uh, our uh, reliance on fossil fuels. And I think that's a good thing. I think it bodes well. But I am very concerned. I mean, democracy is at stake. It's no accident that the title of my Substack posts is the fight of our lives. And we are in the fight of our lives. And it is not just about climate change, but democracy generally, how you get to participate in your local and state uh, and federal government, and what that means for the future of the uh, country and the world. I'm seeing a lot of folks asking if you'd run again here in Charlottesville. <laughs> are those days over? Those days, I think, are over. Uh, a lot I, of I'm, folks saying uh, yeah, well, they'd have think, your back here. I just, yeah, right. yeah, well, I, I, I'm not as old as Joe Biden, but sometimes I feel that way. <laughs> David Toscano, a dream to interview. Um, find him online with Substack. It's fantastic. He's got a number of books that you can buy, I believe, at Barnes & Noble in Barracks Road carrying your titles right now. Yeah, and uh, downtown, on the independent bookstore downtown, uh, uh, is carrying them. So. I, I love it. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. An absolute pleasure. Judah Wickhauer, thank you, sir. Great job for Judah Wickhauer. That's the I Love Seville show on a Monday. An hour and five minutes flies by when you're having fun. Tomorrow's show is going to be red hot as well. We want to be the water cooler of Charlottesville where all ideas percolate. It's okay if we agree to disagree as long as we do it with the golden rule in mind. For David Toscano and Judah Wickhauer, my name is Jerry Miller. So long, everybody. Thank you. Thank you.